Okay, so welcome back to another episode of Medic Minutes, the pre-hospital podcast series for BCHS. Today is March 25th, 2020, and I'm Gord Meineker, a primary care paramedic from Vancouver Island, your host, along with Kayla Richardson. Kayla? Hi, Gord. I'm Kayla Richardson, a respiratory therapist and UBC medical student. Today joining us too is uh, Kevin Lambert, a critical care paramedic and paramedic practice educator from Vancouver Island. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to be here, Gord. Thanks for having me back. First, a big shout out to Janie Nichols, our infection prevention specialist, who had a lot of input into today's episode. Today, we're going to mostly review precautions related to COVID calls, including things we should be practicing on a daily basis to protect ourselves from uh, COVID, as well as protecting our patients, uh, including things like what PPE we should be using on calls. This episode is slightly longer than our usual episodes. We'll have detailed show notes down below, including a timeline of questions that we review today. If you can, please take a moment to complete our survey. We really want to know if these episodes are working for you. Kevin, to get us started, how has COVID spread? Yeah, I think that that's a, a really good first question to, to take on, Gord. I think that we um, it's pretty well established that COVID is spread through droplet transmission. Um, I know that in hospital, it's pretty common to have uh, things categorized into contact, droplet, and airborne for different uh, categories of precautions. The only way it really spreads is through um, droplets created you know, by mouth, by coughing, sneezing, uh, rubbing your nose, that kind of stuff. Where we're getting into the uh, airborne side of things is that sometimes when we sneeze, or especially when we do aerosol-generating uh, procedures, such as nebulizing and whatnot, we start to create really, really small droplets, and those have the tendency to hang in the air. They're still just droplets, but they're so small that they can kind of float around. And that's where the airborne stuff comes in. And for BCHS specifically, this is why we've taken maybe a more aggressive approach than some other places and said that uh, things like N95 masks and airborne precautions are going to be our standard. Gotcha. That's really good to know. Kevin, what can paramedics be doing on a daily basis to limit their risk of exposure? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, obviously we all hear a lot about social distancing and keeping keeping away. I think from a personal point of view, um, for people, you know, at home or even in the station with their colleagues, I think that uh, maintaining distance, you know, uh, the commonly mentioned distance is two meters and keeping away from people uh, is generally a good idea. When it comes to uh, what we can do while at work, I think that, and in speaking with Janie, one of the first things is uh, frequent hand washing, right? We want to make sure that we're really practicing good hand hygiene. And I think that's the first thing because we do so many things even unwittingly with our hands in terms of touching, you know, the drawer, the door, uh, each other, our face. I mean, we just don't even think about it a lot of the time. So trying to keep our hands as clean as possible with good hand hygiene uh, is definitely key. Have a moment to think about uh, what you're going to bring to work before you go. What do you really need in the cab? Is there anything you can minimize on your on your belt or um, on your person that, that you really just don't really need to have? Even things like uh, jewelry and removing uh, rings and stuff to facilitate better hand washing wouldn't be such a bad idea. So I think those are kind of the key things to do to limit your risk. And then along with, of course, um, just good old-fashioned uh, wiping things down and cleaning them, you know, common touch points, steering wheels, door handles inside and out, uh, the radio microphone, uh, the radio itself, um, you know, make sure you're keeping these things clean. So Kevin, I guess I'll have to leave my bat belt at home. Hey, I think so. I think you'll have to strip down your, uh, turn signals <laughs> or fire extinguisher or whatever else you usually carry. 
Okay, so let's run through a hypothetical call. So a call comes up as uh, it comes up as a call for shortness of breath on the CAD, um, and I see that there's no ILI weight on it. There's no influenza-like illness warning on this call. Um, Kevin, is it true that we're no longer screening calls in the dispatch center for ILI weights? And if so, why did this change happen? So they took the ILI weight off of things. They still screen. I think you'll still see some information. I confirmed this yesterday with one of our paramedic practice leaders that you should still see information come up that might be relevant to an ILI call, um, cough, fever. These, these kind of calls are still screened. Where the weight came into play is I think these were being additionally screened by uh, paramedic specialists and clinical and whatnot, and the volume was uh, getting such that it was unrealistic to maintain that. So paramedics are still going to be given relevant details if our call takers um, are, are getting that information. However, we're basically downstreaming the responsibility to the crews to make that determination on arrival if it's safe. And that's why there's a recent uh, flowchart posted up on the um, standard operating guidelines on basically your doorway assessment. You can look it up on the internet now in one of the, on the COVID section just what to look for. And the whole idea is to stand back at the door and and uh, do your own assessment. Don't just rely on the dispatch information. They might be able to give you a hint that something's going on, but they won't be able to capture anything, everything based on their, uh, based on their call assessment. Awesome. So we'll post links uh, in the show notes here to the two meter door assessment that was posted uh, by BCHS. And as always, things are evolving very quickly with this COVID situation. So make sure to check the handbook for any latest guidelines, because what we're talking about is accurate as of today, March 25th. So Kevin, what does this mean for us? What calls should we be taking precautions on? Really, I think you should put it on if you think you have a risk of exposure to an influenza-like illness, the ILI calls. If you have somebody exhibiting signs of an upper respiratory infection, a cough, uh, fever for sure, and then um, even you know runny nose, sore throat, those symptoms are pretty consistent with what we're seeing in the COVID situation. And I think that if you get any kind of indication from your doorway assessment or from dispatch or maybe your partner or if you don't even find that out until you reach the patient and make that determination, it's totally reasonable to step back, excuse yourself for a second, wash your hands, and enact those precautions and get a, get a surgical mask on the patient to try to uh, reverse isolate them a little bit, just so that if they do cough or sneeze, it's contained within that surgical mask. Getting the patient to wash their hands even, because I've never met a patient yet that doesn't reach out when they're on a chair cot when they shouldn't, or... Uh, try to touch 800 things inside the ambulance once you get there. So I think it's uh, pretty reasonable to still step back if you're at all concerned and put on the PPE. I'd sure rather do it and not have needed it than have it the other way around. What should paramedics be doing before they arrive to ensure that they're ready for a COVID call? Maintaining that high index of suspicion and going into every call with the mindset of this might be a COVID call until I can pretty much definitively rule it out is the first um, the first step that paramedics should be taking. I think the next thing is like we talked about minimizing equipment. And there's been some talk of, you know, what do we minimize? What do we what do we take in on the call once we do our doorway assessment? If it is an ILI call, of course we're going to have our PPE on, our gloves, gown, N95 mask and face shield. And if we don't know it is, we may proceed into the call like normal uh, if there's nothing going on. But the question comes into how much equipment do we take in? And if it is an ILI call, there's been discussion of, well, let's just take our SPO2 probe. Let's just take our 
maybe our BP cuff, just minimize the equipment that we're exposing to that, you know, the, the quote unquote dirty environment of the, of the patient's house. And I think that that's pretty reasonable um, because it'll just mean that less of our stuff is dirty. It, less stuff will have to be decontaminated. Less stuff is a potential vector for disease, uh, so to speak, by having droplets on it. Uh, even stethoscopes can arguably be, arguably be uh, not brought in or not brought along on most calls. They don't uh, give us the information we really need compared to the risk of having another uh, dirty surface around. So the downside to that is, and I think that this is where paramedics need to make an informed decision, use their partner, have a good discussion, because at some point you might need something that you haven't brought in. And that could, there could be a downside there for the patient as well in terms of not having your full kit or gear or BVM or medication or whatever the case may be. Um, so I think minimizing equipment based on a doorway assessment or a quick assessment is reasonable. I just don't want people to be, uh, to not have the equipment they need to help our patients when they, when they get in there. So I think just some, some good judgment needs to be shown. And Kevin, when it comes to the ambulance itself, is there anything that we need to do to prepare ourselves for this patient being loaded into the back of the ambulance? Yeah, now there's been a couple of uh, updates that have come out regarding um, trying to isolate the cab of the ambulance from the patient compartment of the ambulance. And those all seem uh, really reasonable. They've all been in the updates. And I believe we saw Oli Olson uh, talking about that as well. Um most ambulances have a slider between the cab and the patient compartment, and that window should generally be closed. The patient compartment um, will have the exhaust fan on, and that should be on high. And the whole point here is to just create airflow. We just want to make sure that we're exhausting airflow for those small droplets I mentioned before that could be hanging about in the air just because of the fact that they're so small that they don't tend to fall to the floor or disappear. We want those to be vented out on a regular basis and having the exhaust fan on will certainly help to do that um, throughout the patient um, transport. The other nice thing is those exhausts are generally the back of the ambulance. So this flow will generally be taking whatever the patient might be, um, might be sending out into the air, might be taking that out the back of the ambulance. And we want to make sure that that, that, that there isn't a potential for any airborne droplets to be going into the front of the ambulance where the, uh, where the driver probably won't have full PPE on while driving because they should be doffing and cleaning their hands prior to getting into the cab and driving. Um, and if everything's normal, then that should be fine. I guess one question that, uh, that we need to answer is how, how do we create this positive pressure in the front of the truck? Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, you know, we can talk about it briefly, just so everyone knows, if you go to the COVID tab on the intranet site, if you're with BCHS and have access to that, there is a, a part on the right under COVID-19 safety updates that has a little sheet on, uh, on how to keep it safe in the ambulance. But just to highlight those, the general idea is that we want to create negative pressure in the cab, or sorry, in the patient compartment, we want negative pressure so that those airborne droplets are being uh, whisked away and present less risk. Um, but in the front of the cab where the driver is, we also want to create a positive pressure there just to keep that, um, try to keep anything airborne out of the front of the cab. So the whole point there is we want to close all the windows in the cab and we want to make sure that the that our um, our fan setting is not sent, set to recirculate at all. So any max AC or anything that tends to pull the air from the cab back in and recirculate it. We definitely don't want that. We basically want fresh air coming in 
at all times. So we don't want it off and we don't want it recirculating, but any other fan setting is fine. And then you can just adjust the fan basically for your comfort uh, and, and temperature on the way. But you do want to keep the fan on just to create that little bit of positive pressure compared to the back of the ambulance where you're actively trying to get rid of that air with the exhaust fan. Awesome. And is there a need to keep the windows closed in the front or can we roll them down for some fresh air on these calls? Well, the direction is to close all the windows in the ambulance cab. And uh, since I'm not any kind of an expert, I would probably just tend to honestly defer to what, what's been said uh, by, by the experts like Janie and whatnot um, on, on that. So I think keeping all the windows closed in the ambulance cab and keeping the fan controls on is probably the way to go. Yeah, I guess it makes sense in a way to try and maintain that positive pressure in the back. Hey, I could see if the wind's blowing by an open window, it might suck air out of the cab and create some negative pressure in there, I guess. And if I leave the windows open, everyone hears me singing when I'm stopped at a light or something. and it starts. That's to the real away. reason why that <laughs> yeah. policy's in place, yeah. yeah. That's what I figured. Um, so I have a question. Are surgical masks ever acceptable when you encounter a potential COVID case? You know, I, that's a great question, Kayla, because I think that's been a subject to real debate. And I spent a lot of uh, a lot of time over the last few days just kind of researching that question myself and looking at, uh, you know, what's put out by the WHO and different organizations around the world. BCHS has a policy of using N95 masks. Um, if I think it's actually mandated by WorkSafe BC um, for use by paramedics, just because there's always the potential for aerosol generating um, medical procedures. Plus, we're also in a really confined environment. Like you can't be two meters away from a patient in an ambulance. It's not possible. So because of the um, the nature of the work, we tend to be using the N95s pretty much for everything. That being said, I know that in hospital, um, a surgical mask on a healthcare worker um, is generally considered acceptable as long as there's no aerosol generating procedures going on. So if you're just going into a patient's room to start an IV or something like that, and you had a full face mask and just a surgical mask on, that is generally considered acceptable in the hospital setting. But from a BCHS standard, we've decided that N95 is the way to go, just I think out of an abundance of caution and um, probably because we're fortunate enough to have stock for that right now. I know some issues, some places just don't. Um, so it's, it's great that we're doing that right now. That being said, if you were pushed into a situation as long as you're not aerosolizing anything and you do have that surgical mask on as well as the rest of your PPE, you should be, uh, you should be okay, but you just want to be vigilant about that uh, aerosol stuff. What about eye protection? Is that part of the PPE, your regular recommended PPE? Eye protection is definitely um, important. The eyes can be an entry point for the virus. Obviously, any little droplet going around and hitting the, any mucus uh, membrane or like um, you know, any part of your eye is a potential source of entry. And that would be concerning. What we generally recommend and what we have is the full face shields, you know, the little bit of foam on the top and the full face shield that covers the face. That is what's recommended for us right now. And that has a couple of additional benefits. I think it tends to keep your whole face clean. I mean, if you think about, you know, where your cheekbones are, the side of your face or something like that, when you remove your N95 and your doffing, if you don't have that full face on, if you just have the goggles, there's a potential that that you may have still been exposed to some point um, to everything that that was right in front of you. So it's just a little bit cleaner, a little bit safer, a bit more of a catch-all to have that full face mask on over top. 
as well, it tends to block, um, tends to add another layer of protection in front of your mask that you're wearing. If you imagine your N95 is on for airborne and droplet, but if we keep another layer in front of that with the mask, with the mask covered by a lot of the uh, the face shield, I think it's just another layer of protection that uh, can only serve us well. Yeah, perfect. And those face shields are are really good too for reminding you to not touch your face. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah, it's kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> they literally block your hands from your face, so those can always be helpful. Um, and do you guys have any recommendations for having your partner check you for anything? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great point. Is that buddy system is really important because. Um, I think that as we go on, everyone will be donning and doffing so much. There's always the chance that you'll get complacent about it again, uh, like people can with, uh, with a lot of safety things. That's why, you know, checklists are mm. in use in so much of medicine. It's not that people don't know these things. It's just that when you're doing it 20 times a day, sometimes you get a little blase about it. So I think making sure that your partner is checking before you go in, especially if you're sort of, sort of subscribing to the, you know, one person is going to go in and be a real patient forward, the contact doing a lot of the work while somebody else hangs back and, and tends to be a little more, uh, quote unquote, clean in terms of being able to hand you stuff and, and, uh, stay distance themselves from the patient. Then I think that having them check before you go in is pretty reasonable. Even things like, you know, are the, are the cuffs of your gloves actually covering the gown or is there, is there an exposed area skin around the wrist, which we know we don't clean very well. Um, you know, we really need to pay attention to that. Um, you know, is your, is your face mask, right? Is your N95 seem to be, are the straps in the right place? So there's no risk of it coming off, you know, around, uh, around your hair. Not for me, it's not as much of a problem, but, uh, you know, for people with more hair, it's, uh, you know, you want to make sure the straps are in the right place and that your N95 isn't going to become dislodged. So I think having, having somebody go through and make sure that you've hit all those points is a, is it's just, it's just sound like, why not take the, take the 10 seconds to have that conversation. So speaking of which, maybe we should go over the order of donning PPE. What do you think, Gord? Do you have a, a list there? Maybe I'll read it out quick, but uh, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to the official documents. There's also a few really good YouTube videos that the organization has put out on how to properly don and off. If you haven't done it in a while, or even if you have been doing it, it's probably really good to refresh on this every once in a while. Just to make sure you're not getting into any bad habits and that we're all following best practices. So first step is clean your hands. And then I think about it as we want to dress our body first. So gown, wash your hands again, and then your face. So N95 mask, uh, face shield, and then your gloves. Perfect. And what about doffing? Sure. We can quickly review doffing as well. So uh, it's kind of the opposite there. So first remove your foot covers, then you remove your gloves, you wash your hands, you take your gown off, you wash your hands again, you remove your face shield, discard your respirator, and then wash your hands again. I think the big thing there, Kev, is there's a lot of hand washing, hey? Oh, yeah. I think that's the whole point is to make sure you're you're performing the hand hygiene all the time. I mean, if, if you think about it logically, it kind of makes sense. I mean, when I'm putting on my stuff, the donning is nice. And I mean, you know, we put it on that. There's an order uh, in which we're supposed to put it on and then put it on your, your uh, gloves last and have somebody check. It's the doffing is the time where everything's dirty and we want to be careful. And that's why there's so much focus on the hand hygiene uh, in doing it. You know, take off those dirty gloves, wash your hands. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Take off the gown. Yep. Wash your hands again, because that gown is covered in, uh, 
in in I was going to say patient goo. I'm sure there's a more uh, technical term for it, but <laughs> you know, but that's that you know that we want to make sure that uh, when we take that off and our hands are are removing it, even if we're reaching around to the back to try to reach inside and take off the gown in a in a systematic way. I think it's still our hands have been all over that gown and there's a potential we've brushed it or something like that. So of course we want to perform the hand hygiene. And then after the face shield and the N95 mask, then we're done. Of course we want to do another really good hand hygiene at the very end, make sure we get those wrists, the thumb, the nails, and be really, uh, be really um, thoughtful about how we do it. And just one other note with the doffing there, Gord is, um, with the N95 mask, just to make sure you're grabbing it by the straps, you know, pulling it, pulling it forward and away from you and breathing out while you do it. Just because, you know, if you think about it, you're potentially shaking stuff off of that mask and uh, you want to make sure you're not just going to take a big breath of it in as soon as you pull it off of your mouth. So just breathe out. And again, that's just one of those little steps and every little bit helps in terms of uh, trying to decrease um, how much virus we're exposed to, right? It's not one virus that gets you. It's the cumulative kind of, uh, kind of attack and, and by, you know, a certain number of viral particles that'll get you. So if we can, with each step, decrease the amount we're, we're getting exposed to, then we're winning. Totally. I think it's the small details that are going to keep us safe here for sure. We talked about the buddy system earlier. I guess if we're going to use a buddy system, probably the doffing time would be a really good time to do that. Hey, have someone watch you doff and go through a bit of a checklist if if it's possible. Yeah, I think so, because that'll be somebody, you know, especially if you're trying to do it quickly, you know, it just takes touching your mask and then touching your eye because your eye is itchy or a bee lands there, or, I don't know, whatever. And all of a sudden you've been exposed to all that if you're not being diligent. So I think the buddy system can kind of save you there as much as it can on the donning. It can help you out on the doffing. So that's a pretty good point. And Kevin... Is there any recommendation regarding double gloving or are single gloves um, enough? Yeah, generally we we don't do the double gloving. It's not something that's been recommended. I've heard that sort of asked and answered and it's been, you know, not encouraged as much um, from a BCHS point of view. Um, if you need to change your gloves, then you kind of need to, you need to change all of your gloves and perform the hand hygiene, I think is better than relying on another set of gloves uh, underneath because gloves aren't completely impermeable to everything. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be lying if I knew any, any more reasons than that. I just know that we've kind of been, um, been told that double gloving isn't part of our normal procedure. And Kevin, as good as these uh, booty covers make me look, should I be wearing them on these COVID calls? <laughs> Are you wearing them on your feet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's a good question. Is that what they're called? Booty covers? Boot <laughs> covers? I've always called them booty covers. <laughs> of course you have, Gord. I think I think that's a different podcast, Gord. <laughs> that's our other podcast, Gord. Yeah. Um, we, we don't need to do the boot covers. I mean, your, your boots are always considered dirty, you know, when you go in. You shouldn't be wearing them home. You shouldn't be doing it. Like, they're usually dirty from, you know, six months ago when you're wearing them home from work. They're dirty, too. So, um, you shouldn't be wearing them in places, you know, when you think about, um, the floor, I mean, floors are generally dirty, um, droplets, a lot of times when people sneeze, actually, and I was just reading up a, a WHO article that sort of got into this a bit, most droplet particles when people sneeze actually dry out by the time they hit, they get to the ground. Like there's not actually anything that hits the ground anyways. So we're not wearing the booty covers. Um, it's not part of normal PPE and it's not recommended by the WHO either or any, anything else I've read in terms of uh, gearing up. So 
we're not doing it. Uh, I think there's also an increased risk. It gets much more complicated in a doffing procedure when you have the booty covers going on and uh, just the chance of spreading other stuff around. So why don't we talk a little bit about um, limiting gear from exposure? So in the back of the ambulance during transport, what are some things that paramedics can do to limit um, exposure to um, like a respiratory virus? Yeah, that's a really good question, Kayla, because I think that's something that um, that everybody's a little bit nervous about. And it comes that sort of comes into, you know, cleaning afterwards and, and what do you do after a call? Um, I think that limiting stuff that we have uh, is important because the less stuff we expose, the less stuff we have to clean or the less stuff will even worse, forget to clean when it's done. Like, oh, I forgot that I grabbed that SPO2 monitor out of the car when I've already used the one out of the kit or you know, whatever else you might be grabbing or opening up to get a piece of gauze and you put your hand inside that patient compartment to get something. So um, I think that trying to keep all of the sliders closed, keep everything closed in the ambulance so that it, everything's covered by a hard surface that's easily wipeable. And again, just kind of having the forethought to think about before I put the patient in the back, what might I need that I will need during transport uh, to help this patient? I think everything from even... Um, even having a word with yourself to decide, does this patient need an IV or can this be done in a better way somewhere else? Uh, does this patient uh, need, um, you know, obviously oxygen is, is something that's talked about in, in, in what, uh, how much they need and how much oxygen flow. Um, are they going to need a glucometer check? Do, they, do I need to check their sugar in the back of the car and open another cabinet and open up another package and, um, and just open up the, the cab to, to more, more things? And I think that this is what makes it a really interesting time, Kayla, actually, is, is, you know, we're starting to think about our whole practice differently in light of COVID. And that makes some of us pretty uncomfortable, you know, where it's like, well, I consider it best practice to do this and do a blood glucose and, you know, have an IV and provide some gravel or whatever other, other things I might be doing. But I think it's just worth having a secondary check or a conversation with your partner and just saying, hey, I'm thinking of not doing this. Does that seem reasonable to you? And, you know, any any time you can sort of limit what you're exposing, what sort of surfaces you're exposing to to the patient with ILI, I think it's reasonable to do that. And we have to clean that stuff after. And uh, if we're thoughtful about it, we can uh, clean it up well at the end. And the less stuff we've exposed, the better. Absolutely. So, Kevin, along those lines of keeping gear safe in the back of the ambulance, uh, we talked a little bit about reverse isolation, but I guess all these patients should probably have, uh, we said, a surgical mask and then trying to perform hand hygiene on these patients as often as possible. Hey, I think it just makes good sense. I mean, they're the ones who are potentially sick with COVID or with anything else. You know, I don't really want to catch influenza a either if that's what they have. So, you know, I think that it's quite reasonable to say, um, excuse me, you know, sir, or ma'am, or would you mind wearing this surgical mask for the trip just to help keep everybody safe? And would you mind washing your hands with this stuff and uh, providing them the opportunity to wash wash their hands? And certainly for if an escort, obviously we don't really want escorts coming with us. Like why expose more people if we don't need to? But if it's absolutely mandatory, like a parent or a, a translator that you really need, then of course, getting them to wear a surgical mask and getting them to wash their hands 
um, several times throughout the call, you know, I mean, is, uh, is a pretty good idea. And hey, Kevin, if we find ourselves on one of these calls that didn't initially sound like it was COVID related, you know, we're on it, it starts to sound suspicious, we back up, we put our PPE on, do we need to be notifying anyone else? Obviously, there's the whole hospital notification procedure, but do any supervisors or paramedic specialists need to know about COVID calls? Well, it should be still tracked in the EPCR. Um, there's there's a new part in there in which you put screening questions in. So it is still tracked that way. I think from the immediate um, outset, if you, if you determine that this is an ILI call when you go in or from the dispatch information, I think communicating with dispatch is really important because this call is going to take longer and letting them know is really important in general. If you do a COVID call, I don't think it's necessary to call your unit chief or call a supervisor right away, because if you're wearing good PPE, you're not exposed to it. Then that's that's something else that needs to be highlighted, I think, is that, you know, an exposure is being exposed to somebody with an ILI or confirmed COVID case without proper PPE. You can even reach out, always reach out to clinical for these cases isn't uh, isn't a bad idea. And the resources, I think, will continue to come and are available online for sure. But there's off-car unit chiefs, there's your unit chief, and there's duty managers to ask those questions of if you're really concerned at the time. But for the run-of-the-mill calls, Gordon, to finish off my long-winded answer is no, you don't need to let somebody know. Yeah, awesome, Kev. And I really like that answer of uh, letting dispatch know. Something you were I just thought of as you were talking is that like if there are other incoming crews, even if we don't know about them, uh, like police or fire or ALS, uh, at least letting dispatch know would give them a chance to notify all other crews as well. Hey, that, that's a great point, actually, Gordon. We hadn't talked about that, but let's minimize the amount of people going in. You know, if you if you if you can do that call without somebody else being there, without exposing somebody else, then by all means do it. And that's not to say just cancel people and, you know, make it a harder time for yourself. We still have our patients, you know, we still have the things we need to do on calls. If you need the help, you need ALS, you need fire, well, then you need them. And that's fair. And they should be taking the appropriate precautions as well. But communication is key. And if you can get away without exposing more people, then uh, then I think that that's a pretty pretty sound practice to uh, to cancel them or let them know, or even just Maybe even, uh, you know, consult with an ALS crew outside of the house and sort of can, you know, run the call by them and, and let them have some input into it, uh, into what, into how it should be handled going forward. There's nothing wrong with that either. So we've, we've been on this call. It came up for shortness of breath. We got all donned. Now we're at the point where the patient's been loaded into the back. Kevin, when should the driver doff their PPE? And what sort of PPE should they be wearing in the cab, if any? Oh, that's a good question to come back to. Thanks, Gord. Is, uh, you know, once the patient is in the back, you got the exhaust fan on and you're, uh, and the doors are closed, um, the, the driver is no longer <clears throat> exposed to that patient. Don't stand, don't stand right underneath the exhaust vent, perhaps. Um, is, uh, then it's reasonable to doff your stuff with the proper procedure cleaning your hand, you know, gloves, clean hands, gown, clean hands, take the rest, clean hands. You know, it sounds like a lot, but it's really important because you're getting into the cab where you're going to be jumping in after the call without PPE. So you want to make sure that that's clean. Um, you know, and you want to make sure your ambulance is set up to allow you to do that in order to do the, uh, do the cleaning, you know, right in, have it right in the door or something. And you don't need to have PPE on when you're in the ambulance. When the slider closed, we want to have the, the vent on to provide that little bit of positive pressure. 
but you don't want to be wearing your PPE, especially your dirty PPE into the front of the cab. But the point is make sure you doff, then drive. If there is any aerosol generating procedure going on in the back of the ambulance during transport, you should be wearing an N95 in the front. Your gloves, not, not as important. You're not actually near the patient. You're arguably two meters away from them. But just to remove that risk of any droplet transmission uh, through the air, wearing an N95 in the front is a, is a, a good way to go. And there's even uh, similar guidelines for flight crews and pilots uh, in place to try to minimize pilot exposure as well. And stop licking patients. Definitely. <laughs> Don't do that anymore. You've cut that out of the guidelines. Is that right? I'm already sad that booty covers are out, Kevin. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I'll take that up in version two. So I'm a respiratory therapist. I will be picking up shifts. Tell me, Kevin, how are you going to limit hospital exposure when you're bringing in a COVID patient to us in the hospital? Yeah, and that's that's been a source of a lot of discussion, Kayla. I know this is still ongoing. Even even today, I've had discussions about that in in the area I'm in, and I think that's a it's an issue that needs to be continue to be addressed around the province to make sure that that everybody's safe. You know, BCHS is pretty solid on what our guidelines are for PPE and uh, ILI and what we should be wearing, but the transition point of coming into the hospital is a bit of a riskier time because, like I say do we wear our dirty PPE into the regular triage area? I can see that being a problem. We don't really want to expose people to that. Um, is the patient going to a segregated area and what sort of PPE can we wear to go into that area if that's what's set up in your in your region? I think understanding your local hospital um, procedure is really important. And I think we'll have to offload a little bit of that responsibility to the unit chiefs and managers of the area to make sure local crews know the procedure at their hospital. And whether that's doffing and donning clean PPE prior to going into the eMERGE, um, uh, or whether that is waiting outside or having a bit more of a, you know, a distanced conversation with triage prior to entering with the patient so that they can do a screen according to theirs. Because, you know, now we're now we're on their turf once we're at the hospital. I think it's pretty fair that they should have a say in how that's going. I can say that one of the, the biggest things, um, like we talked about earlier with communication, is, hey, let's phone them. Let's make sure they know we're coming in with an ILI patient, that we're gowned up. Let's discuss what we want to do and uh, where we should go and give them some, some degree of the acuity. If this patient is, has low saturations, severe respiratory distress, this patient will need to be treated differently than somebody who is coming in for maybe even an unrelated issue and, uh, and yet has ILI symptoms. So I think that the communication is a pretty big, uh, pretty big key for what we have to, what we have to do there. And just a few notes from Janie Nichols, too, from Infection Control. So she just says that, you know, generally, regardless of what hospital you're going to, uh, the driver, when you arrive, should be going into eMERGE to let the triage nurse know that you've, you're there if you have an ILI patient. Um, and then as you enter the ER, it's really important that you're, you remove your PPE as you leave that patient care area. So if you bring a, a patient into a negative pressure room, there will be a de dedicated spot to doff your PPA. That's the best place to do that so that you're not bringing your dirty PPE back through a merge to the back of the ambulance where I know we're maybe a little more familiar with doffing. That's a really good point, Gordon. I know that sometimes even, uh, you know, paramedic, especially if you go to a hospital that you don't end up at a lot, it can be a little intimidating in the hospital and everyone's gowned and gloved up and you're not sure of the procedure. 
honestly, people would all rather that you asked, even if you weren't sure, because like you say, you're in a room, you've got your PPE on with the patient, walking out of that room with that dirty PPE on is, is not, um, that's just not good manners, right? You need to make sure you're doffing that stuff at the door or in the, there might even be an ante room to that, uh, to that room. And that's the procedure. Just ask the nurse that's taking, Hey, what's, do you have a, do you have a procedure for doffing? What, what's appropriate here? Because I'm sure they would rather have the question than have you, you know, going out and, uh, and potentially spreading, uh, spreading the stuff around. Kevin, any tips for cleaning the back of the ambulance after one of these COVID calls? Uh, yeah, Gord, I think that's important to cover for sure because people want to be safe while they're uh, while they're cleaning up after all this. And you know, the cleaning with all the precautions we're taking, I think people, I think it's easy to almost overthink what we need to do in order to clean this. But what we need to consider is that the patient's been removed um, from the ambulance at that point, and we're just there. We're with our ambulance and our gear and whatnot, and we need to clean up. And there's sort of two ways of looking at this. The the first is that if you just have a patient, I'll just throw a for instance out there if it helps. If you have somebody who has, um, you know, suspected uh, COVID or, you know, ILI symptoms and you transport them for, I don't know, a broken foot or for, for whatever the reason is, or maybe for that respiratory illness um, and you're cleaning up afterwards, it's quite adequate to just use the routine cleaning care and that's uh, available on the internet uh, under the under the on the handbook um, and it's just routine cleaning is all you need to do for that and uh, really that just that's basically just consists of making sure that you um, are using excel wipes and that if anything is visibly soiled you're using two excel wipes one to clean the visible stuff and one to disinfect and letting it dry is really important not wiping it off with anything else and uh, just wiping down pretty much every area that might have been touched or might have been uh, exposed to uh, anything. So the sides of the cabinets, the seats, uh, obviously the stretcher, uh, the chair, and of course, giving a good uh, mop out of the car as well uh, on the floor. So you just want to make sure that you're doing a good job of, you know, first cleaning, getting rid of any of the obvious dirt, and then disinfecting, which usually, like I said, comes down to using two Excel wipes. And, um, and just making sure that everything has been cleaned off uh, that might have happened and letting that Excel wipe dry because that's uh, that contact time is what's killing the virus. And Kevin, what if we had to take airborne precautions during this call? We were forced to do some kind of aerosol generating medical procedure in the back. Are there any different precautions when cleaning the ambulance? Yeah, uh, that's an important point is because if anything has happened in the back of the ambulance that would be considering, uh, that would be um, considered, like you said, an um, airborne generate, geez, I'm getting tired of saying that. It's like a tongue twister, an airborne generating medical procedure. So our uh, CPAPs, our intubation, our NEBs, hopefully we're not doing NEBs, um, uh, intubation, suctioning, any of those things that have the potential for uh, aerosolizing and making these small droplets airborne, we want to take special precautions when cleaning. And that's when we get into the direction to make sure that we're leaving the exhaust fan on high, parking the ambulance, hopefully away from other ambulances, not in an enclosed bay. You know, some hospitals have, you know, two, three, four car bays um, where everybody parks inside, which is lovely for weather, but maybe not so good for venting out airborne pathogens. I think that would, <laughs> I think probably most people would agree. So, you know, moving your car away from other people, or at least as far away as possible, you want to make sure you're leaving on the exhaust fan on high to start pulling that stuff out. 
um, of the car and you want to give it 20 minutes for all the air to circulate, leave the doors open, leave the fan on and just let that circulate to make sure that there's no uh, airborne droplets swimming around in the air inside that car. After that 20 minutes is over, then we're good to just go on with our routine cleaning and, uh, and carry on like I talked about before. Awesome. And then what sort of personal protective equipment should I be wearing when I'm cleaning the ambulance in, I guess, both of these scenarios, the one where we transported a routine COVID patient with no airborne procedures, and then also the scenario where there was maybe an aerosol generating medical procedure done? So I think this is um, definitely something we need to touch on because, uh, A, we're at risk of using a lot of PPE uh, that we want to save for patient contacts. We want to we want to be wearing our good PPE when we have the highest risk. When we're cleaning, the patient's gone, we're just cleaning the ambulance. Um, if, if it was just the routine transport that we talked about first of somebody, you know, no aerosolized generating uh, procedures had occurred and it was just a transport of somebody with a, a suspected COVID or ILI, then really all we need to wear at that point is uh, gloves and use the Excel wipes. The, the idea there is that anything we're cleaning up has settled on a surface somewhere, right? And these, these are droplets. These are things that are stuck to there. It's not like it's a powder that we're going to be whisking into the air as we clean it. If we take our Excel wipes and we're giving it a good wipe down, simply having gloves to make sure we're not touching that is actually what's recommended by our infection control specialists is that we just need to do the routine cleaning. Um, of the ambulance. And that's pretty much just gloves and uh, our Excel wipes, our mop and bucket, and and we go for it. I mean, I think we need to use some common sense. If you were, a, it were, if it was a trauma, if there was vomiting, if there was anything else where there's additional splash risk or anything like that, of course, we'll want to use more appropriate PPE, like a gown and a mask, um, you know, surgical mask probably, and um, and eye protection. But we don't need to have the same level of PPE on when we're not with the patient. This is a lower risk time. And uh, so really just, just gloves and the Excel wipes is, is quite, uh, quite acceptable. For the airborne side of things, when there's been an aerosolizing uh, procedure or the, and the possibility of airborne pathogens, that's what the 20 minutes is for. Once that 20 minutes of opening the doors, exhaust fan on high and venting out that ambulance has been done, then we're right back to the routine clean again with the gloves and the Excel wipes. And then other PPE just is required. And I think that's an important point is you don't need to be super gowned. You don't need to be N95'd up in order to, uh, in order to do that, uh, that clean. And um, that is in there on the handbook as well. Um, when you go into um, the clinical area on the handbook uh, under clinical resources, you can see the infection prevention and control and then cleaning and disinfection. And all of this is, is outlined there. The one last thing I want to mention, Gord, um, is that at the bottom of that, there is a, there is a section called cleaning required by exposure type. And uh, I think this is going to be changed because I've spoken with Janie Nichols, our, our resident super expert in all this stuff. There is one section where it recommends having an N95 respirator for respiratory illness, but that's um, a bit of a misprint and that's going to be corrected. If you scroll further down in that document, you see things like influenza, um, uh, TB, uh, all that kind of stuff. It, it does go back to just recommending after the venting out of the ambulance, you're just back to routine cleaning and just gloves are required. So you don't need to be going super crazy uh, with, with the cleaning. Awesome. So really no N95s are necessary for cleaning, assuming that we've ventilated the area well 
Yeah, that's correct. And and there is a stipulation that if you did have to enter the ambulance during that 20 minutes where you're venting it out, then by definition, there's still the likelihood or the possibility of um, airborne um, particles. So you should wear an N95 and PPE if you have to re-enter the ambulance during that 20 minutes. But I think the good advice there is um, just don't, <laughs> you know, just, just wait it out and uh, let that 20 minutes happen and then and then get in there and go to town with the Excel wipes. Awesome. Anything else we need to know about cleaning or disinfecting ambulances and personal protective equipment in that respect? You know, I think we've covered most of it, Gord. I think that, um, you know, like I said, that little caveat of if there's body fluids, then we have specific procedures from that and you should be protecting yourself appropriately. But for our straight up COVID calls and our, our ILI calls, I think we've uh, we've covered it off. And, and um, you know, between that information and the rest of the podcast, I, I think we can uh, hopefully keep paramedics pretty safe. Okay, Kevin, as we wrap up here, do you have any final thoughts or words of encouragement for our frontline paramedics and healthcare workers? You know, I, I think I've seen the ambulance service go through odd times before, and people tend to, to coalesce a little bit and, and uh, come together. Not too close, you know, like two meters away, together, <laughs> but, you know, come together in terms of a, uh, you know, it's a shared purpose. And I think that eventually nothing lasts forever, and we will weather this and get through it. And I think that... Uh, keeping conversations happening, keeping, uh, trying to keep positive, trying to reflect on, on how you're coming to work, you know, make sure you're coming to work healthy and ready to go. And, uh, I think we're going to win, honestly, like, you know, I, I kind of seems strange to put it that way, but I, I think we're going to win in terms of, uh, in terms of overcoming this. I think BCHS is doing a good job. I think the health authorities are doing uh, a good job and doing, and we're all doing everything we can to make sure it comes together. And we're changing so quickly that, yeah, there's hiccups along the way and there's problems, but man, we have some great people working for us and nobody becomes a paramedic or an RT or any kind of a healthcare worker for that matter without wanting to just help people. That's the point, you know, and uh, I think we're going to do fine. And, you know, I mean, honestly, let's just be nice to each other. I think that's the important thing. I like that answer. I agree. Thanks for the shout out to RTs and every other healthcare worker out there who's listening or not listening. Um, look after yourselves. Kevin, thanks a lot for joining us today. I know that uh, it's it's very encouraging for us to know that there are guys like you out there who are willing to kind of sit down and to, to discuss these things and have this level of expertise and experience to discuss with us. So thanks so much for taking the time today. We do really appreciate it. Oh, no, I'm, I'm happy to do it, Gord. I'm, I'm glad that there's people out there who've taught me this stuff. You know, I kind of feel like I'm just parroting it almost, right? Like we have a lot of good, really smart people like Janie and like uh, like other people out there, you know, giving good points and good advice. And, you know, we're all just a product of the people we learn from. So, you know, I kind of owe them most of, most of anything I know. So thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, let's do good things. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Medic Minutes. Uh, as always, there's a survey in the link. If you have any feedback for us, you can email podcast at bcehs.ca. If you have any clinical questions, you can email clinicalpractice at bcehs.ca or talk to your local managers or UC. And uh, stay tuned, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.